In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, Paul says, I discipline my body and make it my slave. You know, we often forget, guys, that God has called us to steward the bodies he gave us so that we'll be ready, healthy, and spiritually dangerous to fight the good fight, whether it's working at your job, serving your God, protecting your bride, or being a great dad to your kids. That's why we're so excited to partner with Mountain Tough Fitness Lab. Mountain Tough Fitness Lab is run by Christian men who are passionate about training you to be your best version and to stay dangerous and ready for God. Join me on my journey by going to mountaintough.com. That's M-T-N-T-O-U-G-H and getting your free six-week trial when you type in the code ARENA30. You won't be disappointed. Stay dangerous. There is nothing of relational significance that contributes to a lasting marriage that somebody can only find out about cohabiting, that they cannot find another way. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who was actually in the arena, whose face is marked by dust and sweat and blood. Welcome to the Men in the Arena podcast, where we interview specialists in the realm of manhood. Each of our guests is an expert in their chosen field or cause as it relates to men. Our conviction is to call you into the arena of manhood, call you out of the faceless, nameless bleachers, and call you up to be the best version of you. Because when a man gets it, everyone wins. Enjoy today's episode. Men in the Arena Army, we salute you. Guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the Men in the Arena podcast. I'm Jim Ramos. I'm here with our producer and good friend, and my brother from another mother, Dale Culver. How you doing, my man? Doing good, Jim. Hey, well, I'm glad to hear that. I, I would not wish ill upon you. Well, sometimes That's I would. Good to right hear now, that. So. Mm-hmm. Anyway, hey, I'm really excited about today's guest. This guy, I don't know how else to say this. He wrote a real gutsy book, uh, Two Teenagers About Sex. And man, this book covers every topic. So guys, you fathers of teens, you fathers of preteens, uh, we, you guys need to check this book out. It answers every question you could ever imagine. I was a youth pastor for 25 years. This would have been a great book to take my students through. Uh, and his dad actually has had a huge impact on my life. His dad's actually an author. And when I was a young Christian and a brand new youth pastor, uh, some of the, his dad's books, More Than a Carpenter, Right from Wrong, really, really uh, evidence that demands a verdict two and one uh, really, really impacted my life. And so uh, I'm just excited uh, to get this guy on the show. But before we do, guys, uh, head on over to our website, meninarena.org. Check out our bathroom book for men. It is a free download for you guys. And Dale, do you got a man word for us today? Yep. And if you say sex, if you say uh, sex or ch- or love, uh, you're fired. No vanilla okay. answers. Yeah, I don't like either one of those. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I bet I'm you're going to pick the children. word confused. Confused. Yeah. yeah confused. What's the word? No, the word is actually apologetics. I threw that out there because oh. Oh, um, I, I was just looking at it a little bit. And I think people need to know what they believe, why they believe it. And they need to they really need to know that so bad because people are going to ask you questions. And how are you going to answer them? And I think a lot of men are afraid to be asked about their faith because they do not know how to respond. And so, well, I that's think really good. Man. Dive into that. Know why you believe what you believe, and be ready to back it up. This guy's dad really was. That was his go-to. And then this guy, our guest on the show today, he does this with teenagers all around the world. A great communicator. The book is a well, well put together book. 
I'm really excited to bring on our guest for today, Sean McDowell. He's 44 years old. He lives in San Juan Capistrano. Uh, he's been married to his beautiful wife of 20 years and high school sweetheart, Stephanie. Yeah. And in addition to his role as associate professor in the Christian apologetics program at Talbot School of Theology, Sean travels throughout the United States and abroad speaking at camps and churches and schools, universities, and conferences. He even speaks at our old stomping grounds, Dale, Hume Lake. He's the co-host of Think. Yep. Whoop whoop. Uh, he's also the co-host of Think Biblically podcast. He's authored or edited more than twenty books, including today's topic: chasing love, sex, love, and relationships in a confused world. And so, I'm really excited about this. Uh, he's a he's a. I appreciate the stance that this guy took on a very difficult subject, and he took a biblical stance. It was a breath of fresh air. I'm so excited to bring our new friend on, Sean McDowell. How you doing, man? I'm good. Thanks for having me on, Jim and Dale. Yeah, I really do appreciate uh, your book. I read it cover to cover, and I appreciate the fact that we live in a world that is becoming foggy spiritually, and the topics like sex and love our default as a church, it seems like, has been lately to to water some things down. And you did not do that. You put together a great book. Uh, you did it in a biblical way. And so, you know what, man? Thank you for doing that. I really appreciate oh, it. Thank, that means a ton. I get a lot of criticism for writing a book on biblical sexuality. So that encouragement <laughs> means a ton. Well, that's interesting. I want to ask you about that. I've got a question about your critics because I know that you have them in writing a book like that. But before you do, I want you to tell us a little bit about the book. Uh, why did you write the book, and how is it a uh, how how is this book designed to help teenagers? But before I have you answer that, I just want to say something to our dads out there, guys. We are targeting you guys in the stress bubble. You're raising kids. This is a book you need to consider. You need to look at this book. This will really help you as a parent to speak into the lives and the hearts of your kids. And so, guys, I want to encourage you during this podcast to tune in. Even though this book was written for teenagers, Dad, this is a book you need to read and you need to pass it on to your kids. So let me read a description in the book, Sean. Uh, it says this, the music we listen to, the movies we watch, they're telling us to keep chasing love and that we'll finally be happy when we find it. The love that the world tells us to pursue is all about self, about following your heart's desires. But what is the Christian worldview of love? When we follow Jesus, we realize that he invites us to reorient the focus of our lives. So instead of chasing love primarily for our own happiness, we are, the, we are first and foremost to give love to God and to, to others. I love that statement, Sean, but it seems radical. What have your critics had to say about that? Well, I get critics from two main areas. One are from non-believers, skeptics, yeah. atheists, who just think the entire Christian worldview is repressive, it's harmful, it's antiquated. Those actually bug me less, so to speak, because they're not committed to Jesus in the scriptures. So to me, as long as I'm actually trying to teach what Jesus taught and a sexual ethic consistent with scripture, then those challenges can come and I can deal with that. The other kind of critics are those who are Christians or claim to be Christians, but will push a different narrative about sexuality. 
that I think is much more in line with our culture, a kind of progressive Christianity, than what scripture actually teaches. So I kind of get it from all angles. But again, it's the same way. On my heart and conscience, if I'm really trying to teach what Jesus taught and stay faithful to scriptures, I'm fine with that criticism. So that's the biggest question. Is this lining up with scripture? Because if it lines up with scripture, then you're on the right side of history, no matter what happens in the culture at large. That's so good, man. I I just knew I was going to like you when you came on the show. You know, a friend of ours, uh, Robert Lewis, has an organization called The Better Man. He was also the guy who wrote Authentic Manhood or 33. Been around for years. He wrote a book called Raising a Modern Day Night, which you've probably read. Anyway, along with Tom Wilson and Barna Research, they produced this survey called Five Essentials to Engage Today's Men, and they surveyed 1,500 guys, 1,000 practicing Christians, and the practicing Christian men under 34 live together with their girlfriends before marriage at the same rate as those who are not Christians. They believe homosexual. 42% believe homosexuality is wrong. That means a massive amount believe it's okay. Uh, another seventy uh, percent uh, ish believe that sex before marriage is okay, and so these are practicing Christian men. So, when you say you get critics that are Christian, uh, I am appalled at where practicing Christian men are heading because I'm wondering if if you can believe those things and be a practicing Christian man at the same time. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. One of the fortunate things I don't have to do is know somebody's heart, engage whether they're a believer or not, because yes. people ask yes. that question all the time. And I say, I, fortunately, you know, like it says, First Corinthians 16, 7, man judges the appearance, but God judges the heart. But yes. what we can evaluate is teachings that people give and their practice. This is what scripture talks about. So we are seeing more and more voices within the church itself. Many that I would say are wolves in sheep's clothing, pushing an unbiblical view about marriage, an unbiblical view about divorce, about LGBTQ relationships, on and on and on. So my heart and concern for writing this book wasn't for the non-Christian. It was first for the Christian young men and women getting barraged with these secular ideas, needing to know what scripture says but why it says what it says and understanding that God's teachings are actually for our best. Yeah. And I want to walk through your book and I've read the book and I've got several quotes I think are powerful out of here, but I love it when an author tells you the point of the book early on. (laughs) And you did, you said (laughs) the point of this book is here's the point of the book, guys. How do I seek God and his kingdom in my relationships with other people? In other words, you continued, What does it mean to truly love God and love other people? So the question, when we deal with our sexuality, this is my opinion, and you said this earlier, is it doesn't come down to what I think or feel. It comes down to, am I passionate about Jesus Christ? And if I am, what is the Bible teaching? Can you embellish a little bit more about the point of your book? Yeah, sometimes in what's been called purity culture, which is the way that sexual purity has been taught in the church from, say, mid-90s into the 2010s. Basically, our discipleship was reduced down in many ways to what we did with our sexual lives. That's what it was kind of narrowed down to. And partly what I'm saying in this book is I'm saying, wait a minute. Actually, the bigger question is, do we love God and do we love other people? So I'm flipping it. 
I'm saying actually the larger way we orient our lives will be reflected in how we approach sex, love, and dating. So the biggest question is who do we love? Who do we serve? What's the commitment of our life? That will be reflected in how we approach sex and relationships. So sexuality is important. I'm not downplaying that. But it's a subset of a larger questions about discipleship and the orientation of our life. So that's why I start with the book saying, look, Jesus calls us to something bigger. The culture basically says, indulge your desires. Define yourself. Affirm somebody else's behavior and you're a hater if you don't. Jesus says, seek ye first God's kingdom and his righteousness. Then these things shall be added unto you. So there couldn't be a starker contrast between the message and calling of the world and the message and calling of Jesus. That, that's so good, Sean. And dads, I hope you heard this, dads. The question is not teaching your kids to abstain from sex and abstain from these types of things. The bigger question is, are you teaching your kids to fall in love with Jesus? You know, Sean said, who do we love? Who do we serve? So I love your approach in this book, Sean. Because I've been saying that for years. It's not about your sexuality. It's about how committed are you to Jesus. So let's talk about this for a second, because I think how I view God has a lot to do with how willing I am to obey his scriptures, right? Is God this uh, cosmic killjoy, uh, or is he a loving God? And in your book, you talk about God's goodness. And you said this, how you understand the character of God shapes how you evaluate his commands. If you don't truly believe that God is good, you'll tend to view his commands as oppressive and controlling. On the other hand, believing God is good sets you free to trust him and his plans as the best path to both giving and receiving genuine love. Again, you go back to this and you say, loving the good God motivates obedience to him. And I just think that is so powerful. Why do you kind of start off the book with God's goodness? Jim, I'm so glad you asked this question. And the reason is because the first temptation in the garden is not that Satan says, hey, that was a dream. Uh, God doesn't exist. <laughs> he doesn't question the existence of God. Satan questions the goodness of God. God is keeping you from all the fun. He's holding out on you. I want what's best for you, says Satan. God doesn't. That's the first temptation. So I've reflected quite a bit and often wondered, why is the first commandment in the Bible not to eat a fruit? Now, why didn't God say to Adam, Adam, don't kill Eve? Like he was pumped to have another human being and a woman. That would have been really easy. Why not give him a simple command that would be intuitive that he could follow? Why give him a command? It's say it's in the center of the garden. Don't eat fruit, which, by the way, is designed to be eaten. And it says this fruit looked really, really good. Why would God do that? And I think the best explanation is ultimately, if the creator is going to be in relationship with the created, if the infinite is going to be in relationship with the finite, there's going to have to become a point where we realize God is worthy of trust and he knows something that we don't know. So the mm. first commandment is like, you're not going to understand this, Adam and Eve, 
but I'm calling you to a relationship and you're going to have to trust that I have your goodness in mind. That's the heart of it. So the scriptures say, like in Deuteronomy 10, when Moses says, you know, these commandments, you know, love God with your heart, your soul, your mind and strength. In chapter 10, verse 12 and 13, these are given for your good. Yes. David says in Psalms 119, the law of the Lord is perfect. He rejoices in his statutes. Psalm 100 verse 5 says God is good. So at the heart of any sexual ethic must be that God is good and his commands are for our good. Now, how does this play itself out? Oftentimes growing up, because my dad worked hard to build a relationship with us, if I was going to do something that he knew wasn't wise, he'd always ask me a question like this. He'd say, son, do you know that I love you? I'd say, yes. He said, do you want in your life and marriage the kind of relationship that I have with your mother? I'd say, yes. He'd say, then even though you don't understand it, don't do that. I promise you, you'll understand later. That's how you take this deep truth of God's goodness and translate it relationally to the next generation. Yeah, your dad wrote a book <clears throat> called Right from Wrong. And in that yeah. book, he mentions, and you're going to have to help me here because I'm pulling, pulling back 20 years of memory, that, <laughs> that we, in order for us as parents to offer precepts or laws, there has to be a personhood or a personal touch attached mm -hmm. to it. And so in God's case, he's saying, I love you. I am good, which leads, and you can trust me, which leads to the next thing, because Satan, who is not good, wanted them to eat the fruit, which would lead to bondage. You know, uh, Jordan Peterson uh, wrote a book that, that was really, really outstanding, and uh, he talked about that men, that we as men are, I'm looking for the book over here. Don't talk away from the mic. 12 Rules for Life. Anyway, in that book, he says, we are the only species on the planet that walks with our sexual organs exposed. We walk upright. But in the garden, that shame causes covering. That's bondage. And so God, mm. in his goodness, wants us to live as free men and women, which is apparent. We want our parents to be free, to be their best version in Christ. And you wrote this about freedom, which I thought was very powerful, Sean. You said, freedom is being able to do what you want without restraint. In other words, the free person does whatever he or she wants without any person or law hindering them. The free person is the one who can say no to the bottle. The free person is the one who can say no to looking at porn. The free person is the one who can say yes to loving God and loving other people the, the way they are meant to love. And so you go on to say that freedom is not the ability to say yes, but it's the ability to say no to anything. But then you continued... And you said that it's it's more than that. It's it's uh, ultimately about being free for something. Can you unpack that? The the, the freedom yeah. that we have to say no, to be yes, say yes. So this came from a conversation I had with a group of Christian students, 17 and 18 years old. And I asked them, I said, can you give me a definition of freedom? What does it mean to be a person who's free? They talked amongst themselves, came back to me, and they said, freedom is doing whatever you want without restraint. I said, okay, paint a picture of the person actually living this life. And they yes. said, well, someone alone on an island. 
where nobody would inhibit them from doing anything they want to do. I said, okay, if God exists, would this change the definition of freedom? And they said, well, if God exists, freedom's doing whatever you want without restraint, but now there's consequences. So in their worldview, all God adds to the question of freedom is consequences. Now, I pointed out to them that they understand half of freedom. Part of freedom is lacking restraint. If you're in prison, you're not free in one sense. But that's what we call freedom from. What they don't understand is freedom for. So if I take my smartphone, it's been designed for a purpose. It's when I know the truth of that smartphone and use it accordingly. It's not a scuba tank. It's not a football. It's not a waffle maker. I use it according to its design. You would say that it's set free. So the question is, then what's our purpose? Well, scripturally speaking, right in Genesis, the beginning, it communicates the idea that we are made to be in relationship with God and we are made to be in relationship with other people. We are only living what we are for in relationship. That's why hell is described as aloneness and heaven is a banquet and feast and family and relationships. That's why during COVID, a lot of people suffered because there wasn't the incarnate relationships that were made for. The worst thing in prison is solitary confinement because you yes. don't have relationships. Well, so I said to students, I said, that means ironically, if the Christian story is true, the person you described as most free on an island is actually the least free because they're wow. not living the kind of relationship God has designed. Now, let me unpack this really quickly one other way. I said to students, I said, is freedom really doing what you want? I said, what about someone to come off your example, Jim, that says they want to look at pornography? I said, is that person free? Or is the person free who has the self-discipline to not look at pornography and not treat people as objects, but beings worthy of love? And they started to realize freedom's not doing what you want, but cultivating the right wants. I said, second, is freedom actually living without restraint? Let's take a piano. Is the person who's free can sit down and just bang a piano however they want to? Or is the person who's free understands the truth and design of the piano, cultivates the discipline and skills to play it, and then sits down and produces beautiful music? I think they started to realize that freedom's not doing what you want without restraint. Freedom is cultivating the right wants and embracing the right restraints. Freedom is living as God has designed us to live. That is counterintuitive. But I'm telling you, Jim, the majority of our young people think, adopt that secular view of freedom without even realizing that's how they see the world. So every book they read, actually kids don't read as many books anymore. Every TikTok yeah. video they watch, every Instagram video, every Snapchat, every Netflix movie, Every time they hear scripture and hear a sermon, they are filtering it through that faulty view of freedom rather than a biblical view. And that's the heart of what I'm trying to do in this book is rewire kids to go, wait a minute. This is not real freedom. Real freedom is living according to the way God has designed us to live. Now that, and that's exactly what we're trying to get across here with, with these students. And, and as a youth pastor for 25 years, we had the same discussion over and over again. I want to do whatever I want. I want freedom. I want freedom yep. from my parents. I want freedom from the church. I want freedom from God. And what we tell them is that what I told them was the Bible 
is like your roadmap. You stay between these guardrails. If you start to wander, it'll take you longer to get to your place. If you ever get there, because you accumulate baggage on the way, you know, we talked about that God is good and that God desires our freedom. And that freedom is the ability to say no to anything in this world so that we can say yes to God's plan and God's purposes and God's will. But we probably should start to unpack the actual lies of sex. And so uh, in your book, you wrote, our world proclaims endless options as, as a path to sexual freedom. But in reality, sex is actually the most satisfying when there is trust, love, and commitment. In a committed, loving relationship, partners don't have to be anxious about sexual performance worried about comparison or concerned about contracting sexually transmitted infections. Instead, married couples are free to experience the joy of sex as God has designed it. So how do you deal with teenagers? And they say, man, what if I'm in love or what about having, getting good at this thing so I can be better for my wife? You know, what's the great lie in you have freedom to do whatever you want sexually. I'd say a couple of things. I'd say, first off, if you're in love and you have sexual desires for this person, those are good sexual desires that God has given you. He's made us male and female, and there shouldn't be shame tied to these beautiful desires, which is a gift from the Lord. But the question is, if you're in love, how do we define what love is? And how do you actually treat this person you say you love in a manner that's really loving? That's how I'm going to frame it. So sometimes we've said, oh, sex is bad and don't have sex. It's wrong. I want to say, actually, look, those desires come from God and it's natural. The question is, how and when do we express these beautiful desires God has given us in a fashion that is loving to God and loving towards other people? So then I'd say that means we needed to find love. Now, I won't walk through the way I do in the chapter in the book, but the bottom line is I think when we reflect upon it, we realize that love is when we are committed to the objective best of another person, their spiritual development, their emotional development, their physical development. If I truly love you, I am committed to your objective best in a sacrificial fashion like Jesus did, whether you recognize what is best or not. So that raised the question. If you are a teenager and you say, I love this girl, I want to have sex. Well, let me ask you a question. Is that in her best interest? Are you actually thinking about what's best for her physically? What's best for her spiritually? What's best for her future marriage? Or are you thinking about what you want independently of how it affects her? And I think when we frame it that way, it helps kids to think through their choices, how they affect other people. And I would also say, what kind of person do you want to be? Do you want to be the kind of person that uses others for your pleasure? Or do you actually want to be the kind of person that loves people, even if it costs you something. And I think there's deep in our hearts. Sometimes we suppress it. We don't want to recognize it, but there's something in our hearts that we want to be people who love. And I would appeal to that with a young person uh, in the fashion that I just described, if they gave me the line that that you gave. Okay. You, you caused me to 
think about something here. I want to turn a slight corner, just a little slight corner. So can you take that same line of thinking and change a dude's marriage with it? Because you said something about a young person and sex. And I thought if our guys who are married could hear you speak directly to them and say what you just said, it could change their marriage. So how does that work in the context of a married man? Well, it's the same definition. Am I committed to the objective best of my spouse regardless of how I feel? That's love. And I don't get to talk about this, Jim, because I always get it right. Writing this book was like, man, I really get this <laughs> wrong. It was convicting. Oh, yeah. Man, life. I want to get I want to get better at it. And I start to realize, okay, in all areas, am I using my wife or am I sacrificing for her and loving her? I mean, I just I literally right before the show. I, I sent out a tweet and I said, the purpose of marriage is not primarily about companionship and happiness. It's primarily about depicting or illustrating to the world God's love for the church. That's what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter five. Well, how did Christ love the church? He sacrificed himself for her he laid down his life. So if I'm married and I love my wife, am I sacrificing for her? Am I acting a way to build her up to be the person God has designed her to be? Or am I acting a way for my own needs, for my own pleasure and getting what I want out of it? That's a convicting question. But that's when the scripture tells us as men to ask honestly. Yeah, that's really powerful, man. I read a book several years ago now. I think it's called Sacred Marriage by Gary Thomas. And he said, marriage is not made to make you happy. It's made to make you holy. That's a rough, that's a rough uh, yeah. paraphrase of that quote. But that's what you're saying, right? God wants us to be holy. And if we're holy, that happiness may follow. But true love is about sacrifice and service and wanting what you called the objective best for someone else. And so that was really powerful. Anything else you want to add about marriage, these guys? You know what? Yes, I would say marriage is about making us holy, but that is still, I would say, a horizontal way of thinking about this. Oh. It's about me becoming holy. The primary purpose of marriage is first depicting to the world God's faithful love for the church. Now, how do we do that? By becoming holy, by living sacrificial lives. So I want to change in people's minds, happiness and um, companionship are horizontal good things that God has given us. But the primary purpose of marriage is vertical that we may depict to God and to the world the mystery of God's love for the church. So that's the motivating factor. So think about like in sports, why does somebody suffer? I don't, I don't just lift weights if I'm an athlete to get stronger and bigger. Yes, I need to if I want to compete, but I lift and put my body through difficulty because I have a bigger vision to be a part of a team that wins a championship. 
that vision changes the way I sacrifice and lift and get up early. Well, that's true for marriage. There's a bigger vision and purpose for marriage. And to accomplish what God calls us to, we need to go through the disciplines and the steps to become the holy people that God has called us to. No, I really appreciate that uh, holiness as a horizontal versus vertical view. It all comes back to Jesus, right? It all comes back Amen. to the original premise, which Amen. is loving God. That is the ultimate question. So, yep. uh, so in your book, you threw one curveball at me, and I think I might have fouled the first one, but I think I finally hit one out of the park once I grasped it. You said something that, I mean, I read a lot of books, man, and I don't get shocked a lot, but you shocked me with something. I've always known, <laughs> you know, Hebrews 4.15, you know, that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is tempted in every way as we are yet was without sin. I know that. I know Jesus lived a sinless life. I know he was tempted in every way. I know I know that, you know, first John, you know, two, fifteen and seventeen. I know the temptation of Jesus in Matthew four, one through eleven. But you wrote this, and I gotta tell you, man, I totally agree with it. But at first I went, oh, oh, this feels weird. And here's what you said. And I want you to unpack this for us. Jesus was not sexually active, but he did experience the world as a sexed human being. His sexuality shaped how he related to his mom, his apostles, and his female followers. This is important because it demonstrates that sexuality goes much deeper than simply having sex. Do you, I mean, when you wrote that, did you realize how profound that statement was? Um, that statement was intend to provoke the response that you got. No, oh, I, and know. I don't think, <laughs> and I don't think unnecessarily provocative, but to stop people in their tracks and say, okay, wait a minute, what's going on here. And I think the reason it's so provocative is because sometimes in the church, all we talk about with sex is sexual behavior. Yes. That's it. So one thing that happens is young people will struggle. They'll be told, don't have sex, don't have sex, don't have sex. All of a sudden they get married, flip on the light switch and have sex. And they struggle because sex has been reduced to behavior. That's one problem. The other problem is we depict Jesus as God and we fail to show how deeply he was human. So we don't relate to him as the high priest that Hebrews 4 talks about. Well, the reality is, is that Jesus was a sexed being. He was male. I'm not saying that makes him more important or better than women. That is completely not the point. But God showed up as a human being and he was sexed. All of us are. That means he experienced the kind of temptations that we experienced and was able to resist them. So why this is important is, number one, I think we see Jesus in a much more human fashion and can relate to him more deeply. But it also helps us realize that sexuality is broader than sexual activity. I am a male human being. And there is a sexuality component in how I relate to my mom is different than my dad, my sisters, different than my brother-in-law. We see and experience the world as sexed beings. So I think that broadens the idea of sexuality just from behavior to who we are as dads that carries a sexuality component, sons brothers. I mean, all of these images have a kind of sexuality to them. And we miss that for, I think, theological reasons and also what's going on culturally 
with the gender and sexuality issue. Yeah. So how, how have you seen culture shift in the last 15 years since you've been married? You've been married 20 years. You got married in 2000. How have you seen our sexual culture shift? So I've seen shifts within the church and I've seen yeah. shifts outside of the church. So I think I, I'm seeing very positive trends within the church. I think we used to push what was called the sexual prosperity gospel, meaning if you just don't have sex now, God will bring you that spouse and reward you with endless sexual bliss and kids for the rest of your life. But then people are like decades later single. I just interviewed a girl on my YouTube channel who's like, I followed the script and then I got married. And then my husband five years in became an atheist and left me and I was single in my 30s. So we have we have taught in the past, not in all circles, but a lot of influential voices. I think a sexual prosperity gospel. And I'm seeing a lot of people look back going, okay, wait a minute. This was in the right spirit, taught some positive things, but let's get a correction and go back to what scripture teaches. And that also means talking about things like singleness that weren't talked about in the past. We just talked about marriage, but Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 7 both talk about the beauty and goodness of marriage as an and singleness as honorable ways of serving the Lord. So I'm seeing some positive trends within the church in that regard. Outside of the church, I think there's a few big trends. Number one, smartphones have changed everything. Everything. So pornography now is the prime means that kids are learning about sex. It's not their parents. It's not the church. It's not sex ed in school. It's pornography. And it wow. is younger than a lot of us would recognize. So the script of porn is shaping how kids think and approach sex. Second, you also have the Me Too movement, which is a good movement, even though there's some issues I disagree with it. There's a yeah. recognition and an awareness of sex abuse and how deep it goes. That's positive. I think we've also seen uh, uh, the LGBTQ conversation in the past 10, 15 years has changed everything about how we understand yeah. marriage about how we understand equality, now about how we understand gender and sex. So I'd say porn, smartphones, and the LGBTQ conversation. You know, another one I would add is I think we also have a, a significant increase in loneliness and anxiety and depression. Yeah, We saw a hockey stick increase in 2012 because of smartphones uh, went over 50% of kids and adults had them. And we see a hockey stick increase across demographics and loneliness in 2012. And then of course, in 2020 with COVID hitting and the quarantine, we've also seen a spike in these things. So you have ubiquitous porn and you have a generation lonelier and more broken relationships. In a sense, it's the perfect storm for the secular ideology to just step in. Yeah, it's a it's a battle. It's a battle right now. Um, it, you have a quote in here I really did enjoy, and I hadn't thought about this either, man. So this is really good. God created human beings with a capacity to create something that lasts forever. Other human beings, and then you went on to talk about the purpose of sex. And so I wanted you had three purposes of sex, and I wanted to unpack those. And then I, you left something out that I was surprised, and so I. I want to see if you mention it throughout uh, these uh, these purposes. So why don't you explain the three purposes of sex and why do you think God gave those? 
Number one, Genesis 1, 27 and 28. God makes the male and female, says populate and fill the earth and subdue it. The first purpose of sex is to make babies procreation. Second, Genesis 2, 24. Man leaves his father and mother, clings or bonds or unites with his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. One purpose of sex is unity between a man and woman who become one flesh in marriage. So procreation, unity. And the third one, I really believe, is to foretaste or foreshadow heaven. Now, I've got to unpack this a little bit because some people hear that if a Muslim dies in a jihad, they get 77 virgins. (laughs) That is distinctly not what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. What I mean is in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word yada was used. Abraham knew his wife, Sarah. Adam knew his wife, Eve. Sexual intercourse is described in relational terms because what happens is God made Adam and Eve where they weren't wearing clothes. They were naked and they were unashamed. They could be close with each other. Sin brings in shame. Sin brings in covering. In the act of sex, obviously the clothing is gone. You're meant to be naked and unashamed. And there's a way that it's meant to, according to God's design, know somebody on a physical, emotional, and spiritual and relational level. Now, that is a foretaste. When we get to heaven, we no longer have to wear a mask and put on a facade of who we are or who we want people to think we are. We will be known and loved by God and other people, despite our past failures, for who we truly are. That's a kind of intimacy that we've been made for. And I think that's a deep desire of the human heart. So sex in this life is meant to foreshadow the kind of relational union and knowing we will have with God and other people in heaven. That's why if Satan can twist and corrupt the nature of sex, he can twist and corrupt how people think about heaven. So this is where I had a a question where did where does pleasure come on your spectrum? Because the the clitoris, there seems to be no other purpose for it, and the whole porn industry it revolves around pleasure. Where did pleasure? Where does pleasure fit in? Or do you not think pleasure was part of God's plan at all? What is your thought with pleasure in the sex experience? Pleasure is not the purpose of sex; it's the motivation. Hmm. It's a blessing from God to reward people in a sense for being obedient and following at least in principle what his design is for sex. So take food. Pleasure is not the purpose of eating. It's the motivation and it's a blessing from God to reward us with savory steak with you know root beer whatever it is that you enjoy. So I don't think it's the purpose. When we look at it as the purpose, I think it starts to make us think, wait a minute, I need to feel good in this act rather than, whoa, this is a blessing from God. And I'm going to be focused on loving somebody else first and fulfilling what they need in this experience rather than focusing on the self. So Absolutely, God has made us. Read Proverbs 5 and Song of Solomon. 
pleasure is at the heart of how God designed sex to be experienced, but I think it's the motivation and a blessing, not the purpose of sex. See, I was wondering if you're going to put that under unity because the pleasure experienced together in that act of that where a couple is united physically, uh, to me, I would put it there, I think. Uh, I'm just, yeah, I need to unpack that some more. That's just really interesting. I really appreciate that. Uh, you, so let's go down here where, gosh, we're running short on time. I got so many things to ask you. So let's discuss this whole term that, that I dealt with as a youth pastor. I know you, you deal with it all the time. Uh, it's a term I used to call technical virginity where couples say uh, a girl or a guy, Oh, I haven't had intercourse, but they engage in what I call extreme sex, which is oral sex and things that some married couples don't do. How do you deal with this technical virginity concept with Christian students? You said to me that you said uh, the debate over whether or not someone qualifies as a virgin seems misguided and even potentially harmful. And I agree. What would you say to those people that think that technical virginity is okay? Well, if they're Christians, I would say, show me in the scripture where it's ever taught that being a technical virgin is God's design for our life. And the answer yeah. is you're going to find it in Hezekiah 6.4. And Hezekiah is not a book in the Bible. He was a king. It's not <laughs> in the scriptures. You won't find it. I think one of the things we've done is we've unnecessarily emphasized solely the physical side of sex, but not the spiritual or soul side of sex. So think about how twisted this is. Somebody could never have physically touched a guy or girl in a way that is wrong and be a technical virgin, but be hooked on porn. Obviously, when we think about it that fashion, that person is not pure before the Lord. That person is not loving God and loving other people. So I want to step back from these technical definitions because the moment we give a technical definition, kids like, well, can I do A, B, C, and D and still fall under that definition? Rather than dying on exactly how we define virgin is if you have oral sex, you're not a virgin. I say, you know what? Let's not even go there. I guess for one sense, they call it oral sex because it is sex. It they is title sex. It that, right? It is. It's a kind of sexual activity. But the bigger question is, is, am I treating this person in love? Am I respecting them? Am I honoring them? Am I caring for them? I think if we frame it that way, it, it changes the entire def- the entire discussion. Yeah, and I think uh, as a follower of Jesus, it's not about how close to the line can we get. It's how far we mm. can flee, right? Flee sexual immorality and all your sins of your youth. So in your book, you talk about, here's another lie that I think we need to unpack. You talk about a study called Fewer Sexual Partners Means a Happier Marriage by Olga Kazan, and it, it explains something I've been preaching for years. I know it's true, but tell us the truth about sex with multiple partners before marriage. So here's what's interesting is that when people are asked to rate their sexual satisfaction— Religious people, and in particular Christians, consistently rate their satisfaction higher. Yep. Now, what I don't want to do is say one of two things. That means people who aren't Christians are having bad sex. That's ridiculous. 
I don't want to say every person who's a Christian is having good sex. That's obviously false. And I don't want to say be a Christian so you can have the best sex. That is not the motivation. But I want to say, could there be a reason why Christians would report this? Well, God is the one who designed sex. He gave us boundaries for our flourishing and for our best. So when we follow God's design and we experience the freedom we were talking about earlier, Jim, there's a kind of contentment and flourishing that comes with that. Mm -hmm. There's not certain kinds of anxieties. There's a contentment. There's a peace. There's also in sexuality, if you follow God's design, there's a deep love and commitment with this person and trust that is built up that transforms the experience. So this was one study that I cited that actually showed the more sexual partners somebody had, the if I get this correctly, the less satisfaction they reported in their sex lives. And it just increased, so to speak, or decreased, depending on how you look at it, with the number of sexual partners the person had. That's just a really interesting fact that people should know and ponder on. Well, you know, I read a stat a survey that was in, of all things, Newsweek magazine 15 years ago that said the same exact thing. So I think that is really good. I just wanted to bring that out because that is a lie that some of our people are believing. And a lot of the single men listening to this podcast are like, well, hey, you know, whoa. And I think they need to realize that it's a lie. And let's talk about another lie in your book. I really appreciate that you unpack this. Let's talk about the lie that, hey, man, I love this woman. I'm going to get married to her. I, I, I just, I just want to make sure that we're compatible uh, or financially, maybe it's a little tight or, or maybe I want to just see if the relationship's going to work. We're going to live together. Can you talk, you know, it makes logically, it makes sense. Live together before you're married and you know, you should be able to test the relationship illogically obey the Bible and don't live before you're married. You know, the Bible doesn't seem to make sense there, but statistically we know the truth behind this issue is that cohabitating couples put themselves at a severe disadvantage. Can you unpack that? Let me state this as frankly as I can. (laughs) There (laughs) There is nothing of relational significance that contributes to a lasting marriage that somebody can only find out about cohabiting that they cannot find another way. So number one, I don't buy any of the supposed advantages that are offered for cohabiting. The only one I could maybe think of is like convenience. Okay, sure, there's a convenience factor, but that's not going to contribute to a successful marriage. Correct. But second... Cohabiting also contributes to disadvantages and less likely success in a future marriage. So I think it lacks positive factors that help it, and it contains negative factors that are to its detriment. So I actually I, I document these in my book. I'll read a few. Cohabitors yeah. are twice as likely to report domestic violence. They're much more likely to cheat on their partner than those who are married. They have lower earnings and savings. Cohabiting men are less likely to help with chores around the house. Cohabiting men are likely (laughs) to engage in high-risky behavior. Cohabitors experience more disagreements and fights. So here's the bottom line. There's a lot more than this, but here's the bottom line problem with cohabitation. 
People who get in a cohabiting relationship think they're getting a simulation or taste of what marriage will be like. But the problem is in cohabiting relationship, it lacks the very thing that makes marriage work. Exactly. What is that thing? It's called commitment. Commitment. If you are in a cohabiting relationship, you can walk out the door any moment when all things are considered minimal cost. But if you're married, my wife and I may disagree. We might be upset with each other. We might see issues differently. But in the back of our minds is this. I am committed to him or her for life. Yep. So we are going to figure this out and get through it. Commitment changes everything. The very thing that makes marriage work is lacking in a cohabiting relationship. So people who are cohabiting think that they're getting a foretaste of it, but they're putting themselves at a disadvantage because they don't have a clue what it's actually going to be like when they get married and commit to each other. Absolutely right. And I would say commitment mixed in with a little stubbornness. <laughs> hey, I've got one last question. We're out of time, Sean. There's so much in this book I, I wish we could unpack. And I really want to drive our guys over to grab the book from you. But I have one last question and we'll we'll close it out for today. So I'm a guy, I'm listening to this podcast, I'm driving to work. When should I start talking to my teens or preteens about sex and how should I go about it? Well, a talk on sex starts as a kid comes outside of the womb. It starts <laughs> early. Yeah. I'm dead serious. How we the tone that we use how we touch kids appropriately, the words that we use. Don't say wee-wee, say that's your penis. Show comfort with the bodies that God has given us. So it starts early. If you're, in one sense, if you have a teenage kid and you haven't talked to him about sex, part of me wants to say it's too late. Now, it's never too late, but we should start much earlier. Now, I'll just give you a couple of practical ways I do this with my kids. Thank you. One is I try to use their media habits regularly. So if I see a TikTok video, if I see a Netflix show, I'll often ask my kids, I'll say, hey, how do you feel about how sex is portrayed in that movie, in that video? What do you think? And we just talk. So my son, this has been two years now, he wanted to see this movie, Bohemian Rhapsody. And it was about the rock band Queen. Had a little bit of, it was PG-13, had some ideas about sexuality, but I thought, you know what, he's old enough this is fine. I said, I'll take you and a buddy and I'll pay for it. If when we're done, we just come back and sit down at the kitchen table. And I just want to know what you think about it. And I just asked him questions. Hey, what'd you enjoy? What'd you think? As Christians, what can we agree with in this film? I said, were there any things that actually are not Christian ideas coming through this? And we just had a conversation. A second thing, um, my daughter, when I wrote this book, the manuscript, she was 12 at the time. Now she's 13. I said, Hey, she loves shoes. Our whole family loves shoes. <laughs> she, I said to her, I said, I'll buy you a new pair of shoes. If you just read this whole thing, promise me you read the whole thing, and we go to coffee and just talk about it. She goes, Dad, there's an outlet in here. I can get two for the price of one. Is that okay? I was like, sure. You're an entrepreneur too. Go for it. So she read the whole thing. We go to coffee, I don't know, an hour, hour and a half. And I just asked her questions. Hey, what'd you learn? Did you disagree with your dad on anything? What story was your favorite? What, like, And we just talked about it. Then we walked across the street and we got her two new pair of shoes <laughs> at the outlet. So 
two big things. One is conversation, conversation, conversation. Ask questions. Listen. Be a safe person. Be slow to judge and just ask questions. Second, be come up with creative ideas. So when I my first book, it's funny. I was like, I'm going to come up with 10 chapters because that's an easy number. I wrote that before I had kids. Writing this book, I was like, wait a minute. How do I actually write a book that I would use as a parent? I was like, I'm going to come up with 30 short chapters so a parent could read them with their kid each night and talk about them. And I've already gotten emails from parents who have said, I just read this to my son who's 12 or who's 14 each night for one month. And it gives me a practical way to talk to these kids about sex. So do it. I'm sure there's a lot of guys going, I don't have all the answers. I have regrets. And my answer is you don't have to be perfect. Just be willing, be honest with your kids. And I'm telling you, kids today want wisdom from their parents, especially their dad. So if we're not willing to consciously teach them a biblical view of sexuality, I can virtually guarantee you they're unconsciously adopting ideas of the world we live in. Absolutely right. Hey, Sean, thanks so much for coming on the show today, giving us yeah, a little mic drop there. I love that. Hey, guys, let's get our boots on the ground. What are you going to do because of what you heard today? And here, here, I think this is our best play, guys. Here's what I say. Go and pick up a copy of Sean's book. Sean, Amazon.com. Can they find the book on Amazon? Any bookseller, you'll find it. Chasing Love. Guys, Chasing Love by Sean McDowell. Pick up a copy of that book. Commit to one month. One month, a chapter a night, walk with your teen or preteen through that book. I think you will be blessed and you will be stepping up as the man that God calls you to be. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Sean. Sure appreciate it, brother. Dale, take us home. Yeah, guys, and you can just look at these podcast notes and you'll find a link to that book. Now we'd like you to head on over to meninthearena.org and grab your free book from us. There'll be a link right on the front page. And we'd also love for you to head on over to Facebook and join our Men in the Arena Facebook forum for men. And once again, if you want some free swag, send us a positive review of the podcast. And until next time, fill the wet sand on the arena floor. Hear the deafening roar of the crowd. Taste the sweetness of victory. Smell the stench of battle. Get in the game. Get dirty. Grind it out. And be a man. Men in the Arena. If you hunger to be your best version, join us along with thousands of men from around the world. Check out our Men in the Arena forums. You can join on Facebook or on our website at meninthearena.org. While you're on our website, remember to pick up your free electronic version of Jim's bathroom book for men, The Field Guide. It's a daily study of manly words with epic stories in the Bible. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Men in the Arena podcast. Remember, when a man gets it, everyone wins. What type of dad are you? Guys, in my 35 years of ministry, I've noticed that guys basically fall into two categories. And in those categories, there are four types of dad or four phases that you pass through as a dad. We just dropped an amazing quiz to help you discover what type of dad you are. Find out what type of father you are and get our custom resources fit to meet the needs and the questions you are asking. Head on over to menarena.org. Join 20,000 men's from around the world and find out the type of dad you are.